Did that little survey before about if anyone had made a news resolution, there wasn't that many. Um, maybe there are some people who don't use that terminology. There might be one thing or a few things that you really want to do this year. Um, I must admit that I don't personally make like I'm resolving myself to do this this year. I kind of have things I want to do. And the thing I think I want to do, <laughs> obviously not very resolved, the thing I think <laughs> I wanted to do, um, is get up earlier this year, every morning. Make your, on a regular basis, kind of get up earlier so I'd make the most out of every day. I used to be an early riser. And I developed a technique to help me get out of bed really quick. Um, I decided that as soon as the alarm went off, I'd just get bolt upright and I'd jump out of bed straight away. I'd walk to the shower, I'd you know, jump in the shower and I'd be like trying to minimalise this time between lying horizontally and standing fully awake vertically. And this is a terrible time. I'm sure you'll all agree. <laughs> it's very blurry that time, isn't it? It's blurry and it's confusing before you gain, regain full consciousness. The moment when you don't even know what day it is or where you are or what it is you're supposed to be doing standing up anyway. Or who am I? It's a terrible moment. Anyway, to speed the waking up process, that's what I used to do as a single man. <laughs> now, I don't want to put blame on anyone. But when I got married to Michelle, my early morning habit went out the window. Michelle had a different technique. Her technique prolonged her time lying horizontally, her time in that warm and comfortable bed. And it was called the snooze button technique. I'm not sure, some of you obviously have snooze buttons and you love them, they're your best friend. Now instead of getting out of bed really quickly, what what would happen is when the alarm would go off, Michelle would kind of lean over and kind of hit the snooze button. And that would give her nine minutes of extra snooze sleep time. Now, we're after you, yeah, sorry, nine minutes. Now, she would do this like three or four times. <laughs> kind of maximise that time in bed. Two and a half years later in our marriage, um, Michelle's technique has won over. And sometimes, I confess, we hit the snooze button for between half an hour and up to an hour sometimes. <laughs> Some of you are going, that's disgusting, you shouldn't be in bed. What I hope to achieve this year is to actually get out of bed when the alarm goes off. And uh, by that way, I'll get an extra half hour to an hour in every single day, which I can use. Now, I wonder, is that similar to you? Maybe it's not, you go, no, nah, I'm already, I've mastered the snooze button. What is it that you really want to do this year in 2006? Or maybe it's, who do you really want to be in this year, 2006? There are a lot of worthwhile goals, a lot of worthwhile things to resolve to do in this coming year. But this morning, I want to present to you the ultimate New Year's resolution. The one thing that should be the underlying purpose of everything you do in 2006. The goal to strive for in 2006. This goal even makes itself out to be a deciding factor in whatever you say yes or no to this year, in every area of our life. 
It's a New Year's resolution worth living for. Let's um, take your Bibles, if you have one, and turn to John chapter 2, verse 13. If you haven't got a Bible, you might want to kind of sneak over the shoulder of someone who does. John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. It's heading that Jesus clears the temple. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover... Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others um, sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded a sign of him, demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. There is nothing in the whole life of Jesus where we see Jesus so passionately concerned, as in this account we've just read out. We don't see Jesus get this angry about anything else. He doesn't get this angry when he sees social injustice. He doesn't get this angry when he sees people oppressed by Satan. He doesn't even get this passionately angry when he sees people separated from God. No, this is the only time where Jesus is this passionately angry. And the reason he is so angry is because the glory of God is at stake. The glory of God is being hidden. Jesus is passionate, he's zealous, consumed for the glory of God. Now, for those of us who have heard this word so many times and have kind of forgotten its meaning, or if we're just hearing it for the first or second time, here's a little definition of glory. The glory of God is the revelation of who God really is. It's a revelation of his being. The revelation of God's nature. The revelation of his presence to humankind. The image is is like this. Imagine we can't see God. Pretty easy, really. God, for the purpose of the exercise, is beyond the ceiling. It's just beyond the ceiling. Just kind of imagine with me. Now, most of us have some kind of idea of who God is. You know, he's amazing, all-powerful. All-knowing. We understand from the Bible that he spoke 
the world into existence. By his words, he created the world. And now God sustains the world. God is amazing. So if we could see God be on the ceiling, we would see who he really is. How amazing would that be to catch a glimpse if he was just beyond that ceiling? Now imagine if God somehow he made a hole through the ceiling. So much of the disgust of the people who do maintenance around here, peel back the iron of the roof and he peeled back the insulation, peeled back all the, the beams that are supporting the roof, peeled back just this, what we see here, the kind of the, this wood panelling here. And so all we'd have to do is look straight through that hole and we would see who God is. How amazing would that be to catch a visual of who God is? Now we would see this is the glory of God. We would see God revealing himself through the ceiling, the revelation of his being, the revelation of his nature, of his presence. So the glory of God, who God really is, revealed to us. Let's have a look at this moment in Jesus' life when he got irate, when he was so passionately angry, when the glory of God was at stake. At this moment in time of Jesus' life, we see that the Passover festival was about to happen. You know, the time they remember the original Passover that happened way back with Moses at the Exodus. And this is a time where huge numbers of people come to the city. They come from all around um, Jerusalem and they flock to the city. It's massive. And then when they get to the city, they go to the temple. They go to the temple to worship God, you know, to offer sacrifices to take away their sins, to make them right. Now the temple was the place that God developed so that he could dwell amongst his people. It was like the connection point between sinful people and holy God. The place where people would approach reverently with kind of awe because they're approaching a holy God. This is a place of reverent worship. But when Jesus goes into the temple, where people are assumably worshipping God, he doesn't find reverent worship. He finds the bleating of sheep. He finds the mooing of cows. He finds the cooing of doves and the rattling of money changing hands. This is no longer a house of worship. It's now a marketplace. It finds that very resourceful people have uh, set up trades in the courts of the temple. People, these resourceful people know that when people come from all these different places, they need to get a, a dove or a cow or a, you know, or a sheep to offer the sacrifice. And these people know that um, if you're a conscientious Jewish male, over 18, you've got to offer the half-shekel temple tax. It's a currency that's only really used at the temple. So there's money to be made if you can set up base there, you know, so you can just make a bit of coin on the side. And you know you can inflate your prices too when you're in the temple because at a last resort, people have to buy it. It's kind of like 
going to the MCG or the Docklands and having to buy four and twenty pie for five bucks. <laughs> when Jesus sees a temple like this, he's angry. But he doesn't just flip his lid, you know, go into a fit of rage. Now he's very calculated. There's no lapse of self-control like some people might like to think about this passage. Now what Jesus does is construct controllably an effective way of driving this commotion outside of the temple. Very calculated. Now, I reckon it would be interesting to imagine what the disciples were thinking at this time. He's making a whip out of cords. He's looking around, he's finding cords, and he's making a whip. Hey, Jesus, what are you doing? I'm making a whip. What are you making a whip for? I'm making a whip to drive this disgrace out of my father's house. Oh, okay, good, great. He constructs a whip of cords. He makes a whip. He's angry. He's irate. He runs in there. What are you doing? What are you doing turning my father's house into a market? Get this out of here. The accusation is they are defaming the glory of God. They are hiding the glory of God. The place where God dwells is being turned into a marketplace. At no other point, please hear me, is Jesus this irate and angry when people defame, as here when people are defaming the glory of God. Now you might have read about this account before. You might have seen it, the cleansing of the temple in a movie. Um, or you've imagined it, you know, how it's going to be. And I think sometimes we think, like little church, you know, nice little church, and on the side over here, someone's got a little table with some money on it, like a card table, really tiny one. And then there's someone with a little sheep, you know, on a kind of a, on a lead, and maybe a couple of doves and a, a little calf or something. But it's the wrong image. We're talking temple, which is the size, the outer court of the of the temple, the courts of the Gentiles, was this size of a football field. That's the area we're talking about. And then we're talking about people who flock to the city and are in there. It's a, it's a hub of activity. There would have been stalls and stalls of money changes. There would have been so many people selling cows and sheep and selling doves. This was a thriving marketplace. And Jesus goes in there and he drives all the commotion out. He drives all the people selling, changing money out of the temple. Can you imagine doing that yourself? That's amazing. He's angry because God's glory is being defamed. Now, do you see the big picture that Jesus is seeing at the temple? The purpose of the temple, the place where people can meet with God, where God meets with people, the place where he reveals himself of reverent worship, the place God's glory dwells. It was the only place instituted by God where this could happen. He's so passionately angry about this. Nothing should get in the way of God's glory. Absolutely nothing. Anything that does, he passionately opposes. 
So in verse 17, we have the flashback of the disciples saying, they, they remembered that zeal for your house will consume me. Passion for your glory consumes me. Is this what consumes you and I? Are we this concerned for God's glory in our life? Is this the overall New Year's resolution that you have made for yourself this year? Of course, things have changed since the temple. No longer do you need to go to Israel and go to Jerusalem and go up to the temple if you want to be uh, in a place where God dwells, if you want to meet with God, if you want to experience his glory. See, now the ultimate revelation of God, of who he is, of his glory, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Even in the remainder of the passage, we get a hint to the time where Jesus is now replacing the temple. But today I want to focus on something a little bit different to that. Because there's somewhere else where God is revealed. There's another place that a non-believer can come and experience God and can have God revealed to them, can see God's glory. And that's through us, through the church. In 1 Corinthians 6, we hear Paul encouraging the church in Corinth to no longer practice actions that displease God. And he gives them a reason for no longer doing this. He gives them a reason. And here it is in verse 19 to 20. It says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? This is profound information. Before the time of Jesus, the place where God made his presence known was in the temple. He dwelled in the temple. God wasn't limited to the temple, but this is where he would meet with his people. In the book of Exodus, chapter 29, it says, I will dwell among the Israelites, and I will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The temple is where God meets with people, where the all-present God, the uncreated one, who is not confined to creation, where he dwells on earth to reveal his glory. So that's what it used to be. So when we read 1 Corinthians 6, and that's right for every one of us in this building right now, people who are followers of Jesus Christ, their bodies, our bodies become a temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you get the significance of this? People long, no longer need to go to Jerusalem to see the place where God dwells, to experience God revealed to them. No, they can just go to a believer in Jesus. Any person who has put their trust in Jesus and is following them, and in that person, God's Spirit dwells. I want to encourage everyone here today to think about this amazing truth. If you have stopped living for yourself and you're living for God in Jesus, you have received forgiveness and the Holy Spirit dwells in 
you. How do you feel when I say this to you? How do you feel? This is something to be so joyful about. God's Spirit living inside us to guide us, to help us, to empower us to live for Him. This is the promise. This is the reality. Now let me tell you also about a fantastic responsibility that comes as a result. Our role is to show God's glory, that people might see us, hear what we say, see what we do, and they might be pointed toward God, that we might reveal God to them. When people see us, they should be thinking, you remind me of someone. I don't think I've met this person, but I can't put my finger on it. And there it is. It's God. The restored image of God. God has chosen us, the simple point, to reveal his glory to the world. We are temples in which even his spirit dwells. So let's think for a moment about that that temple scene. Let's think about that temple scene. Jesus has just turned up to see the marketplace that is in the temple. And Jesus is passionately angry because God's glory is being desecrated. It's being hidden from view. God's presence is being ignored. Now the question I ask us is what state are our temples in? Are you showing people, are we showing people around us at work, at home, at the sporting club, wherever we live, are we showing who God is in our life by the words we say? Or are we hiding it by the money change tables and the cows that we have in our temples, in our lives? Please see Christ's passion to clean the temple out. Made a whip of cords and he drove all that out. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. So what mooing cows do we have, do you have, to drive out of your life? So that God will be glorified. The purpose of our existence is this, is to glorify God. To let nothing hide his glory. How do you feel? Feeling challenged or comfortable? I'm not sure. Well, hopefully you're thinking, I'd really like to do this. I'd really like to have a life that will give glory to God. I really, really want this. Hopefully that's what you're thinking. And here are just a few thoughts, just three. The temple, that is you and I, we need to be set apart for God. And the word being set apart is called holy. God wants us to be holy to be set apart that we might glorify God, that we might be a great revealer of who God is. Now, an example, take silverware. It only comes out at Christmas. You know, and people who own silverware will set it apart in a drawer or a nice little wooden box or something, and they'll only use it on special occasions. They won't use it for every meal, every average meal. In 2 Timothy, we read, in a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. 
If a man or woman cleanses themselves from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, prepared to do any good work. God wants us to be set apart for his purposes, not just for everything else. It's the first thing, be set apart. The second is, how do we get set apart? We die to ourselves daily and we live for Christ. I think that even as Christians, we can reclaim parts of our life that we've once given over to Christ. We may have given him our whole life, but every now and then, we kind of just want to regain parts. So every day we have that decision to make. Do I live for Christ or do I live for myself? I think it will be really important for us, even today, to set aside time to examine our life, to even ask other believers who we trust, our trusted friends, to help us find within us the attitudes and the actions and the heart condition that we need to confess to, that we need to die to, in order for us to be more set apart to glorify God. And at this point, I want to remind us that if you do, if you have found forgiveness in Christ and you are living for Jesus, you are a child of God. Please hear that as well. Because sometimes we can feel the I'm, I'm rubbish. But when God actually says, no, you have forgiveness in me. You are my child. I dearly love you. My spirit dwells in you. So if this is you, if you've made that decision to believe in Jesus, you no longer need to face the condemnation. You know, the condemnation that Satan says to you, you are rubbish, you have got no place as a Christian. God doesn't love you, look at what you've done. You are free from that. Please hear me as well, you are free from oppression, from sin. You don't need to be burdened by that anymore. So I want to remind us that in Jesus we have eternal forgiveness. That's the starting point. So when I challenge us to like daily die to ourselves, I'm actually not saying we're worthless. I'm saying we're children of God. We're loved. We're forgiven. We need to live up to the reality. Do, do you see the subtle difference? So the challenge to die is to live up to the reality of who we are in Christ. Praise God, eh? for forgiveness and mercy and his grace in Jesus Christ. The third and final step, the coolest thing, is that the Spirit of God is within us to help us, to help us put to death things in our life which don't please him. God has given us his Spirit to help us be set apart for doing his work, to help us clean the temple out, in Romans chapter 8, verse 12, it says, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit, if by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. 
By the Spirit, we put to death misdeeds of the body. By the Spirit, we are empowered to clean out the temple, to kick the animals out of our bodies. Transformed, made holy. So we need to ask God at this point to help us. We actually want to desire and long to be more set apart for God's glory. And when I say ask, I'm not meaning the kind of the the lip service, kind of, yeah, God, can you help me out? I mean, with all our heart and mind and soul, desire it. So the three helpful tips. Be set apart for God, one. Be set apart for God by dying to yourself and living for Christ. And third, die to yourself and live for Christ, empowered by the Spirit. I think at times our lives can resemble more a marketplace than they can a temple that reveals to people who God is, reveals God's glory. Judgmental attitudes towards other believers, ethics and actions that don't balance up to who we are in Jesus. You know, we have the little sheep walking around. And and we still tolerate it there on the side. So what's your New Year's resolution for 2006? Mine, the getting up early thing, I reckon that's a a good thing, good habit to make the most out of every day. Get up early. But it can't be the overarching priority of my year. Anything less than this priority is not worth having as the overarching principle that would govern our lives. So the one New Year's resolution that is worth living for is to show God's glory to the people around us, to the community we live in. Live more for Christ in 2006. Clean out the marketplace that we have tolerated for too long, that we might be temples of God set apart for his glory for showing his glory. So let's desire it. Let's long for it. Pray for it. Strive for it. Empowered by God's spirit. Let's make this year the year to glorify God. Let's pray.